I'll be reading from Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, which is actually the beginning of verse of chapter 12 in the Hebrew, and we'll read the entire chapter. And then I've asked Tim Failer if he would pray for the ministry of the word. Hosea 11, verse 12. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with him. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin." But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram. And Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. Let us pray. If you responded to the hearing of this 
chapter by saying, not again. I'd really like to go back to chapter 11. Why didn't Hosea end it there? We really liked where he said, they will walk after the Lord, and they will come trembling like birds from Egypt, and I will settle them in their houses. That would have been a good ending for Hosea. We would have rejoiced. We would have come full circle to what we saw at the end of the prologue, the end of chapter 3, when he says, Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will become trembling to the Lord and his goodness in those days. But Hosea obviously has more to say. There is a transition here from what's been a fairly long message from chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 11. It was a legal case. Remember how it began. Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. But now there is a new message, shorter this time, from chapter 12 through chapter 14, verse 8. But it's a new legal case. Look at 12.2. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. There is a transition from that message which focused on places and events, things that were illustrative of the fact that there was no knowledge of God in the land, that there was no faithfulness. Remember what he said of them. Their loyalty was like what? The dew on the ground. It, it disappeared in a heartbeat. But now we're about to see two great chapters, 13 and 14. 13, the intensity of God's judgment. One more time. But chapter 14, the glory of God's reconciliation. Hallelujah. But in this transition, chapter 12, the focus, again, is not on those places or events, but on persons, and, and specifically the person of Jacob, but, but not so much on just the activity which we have laying out here almost like a, a sermon uh, outline or the cliff notes of a sermon on Jacob, but his character traits, what he was really like, the, the personality, and the fact that Israel, the nation, and he groups here, by the way, Judah and Ephraim, Judah being the southern kingdom, and Ephraim the strongest, the, the greatest of the cities or the, the territories of the northern kingdom, together as one. we'll see that they had a very distinguished ancestry, Jacob, and even Ephraim, where we see his blessing, where he, God places Ephraim ahead of his brother Manasseh. But what does this DNA mean to Israel anyway? What, what does it mean to them, and why would Hosea discuss it here? Well, the first thing we see is that there is certainly, if I could use this play on words, a double spiral. We know that 
DNA has that double spiral helix, but the double spiral of Israel is a downward spiral. Notice what it says in verse 11, uh, 12 of chapter 11. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceits. There, there's the double talk. There's, it's, God feels surrounded. It's, it's a capital me. God is surrounded with the lies and with deceit. Well, how is that? Well, back in chapter 11, verse 9, the Holy One in your midst. This is what God is feeling from the people of Israel. I'm surrounded with the people who lie and, and, and practice deceit. And, and the emphasis in the, in the Hebrew is that it's, it's a fancy word called a henniatus. There, it's things put together. They lie in order to deceive, or it comes out in translation as violent deceit, or, or lying that ends in a violent manner. That's what God is surrounded by from his people. And Ephraim, verse 1 of the next chapter, feeds on the wind. He's, he's eating up applause. He's eating up flattery and, and unprofitable things. And it's, it's like eating the wind. There's no substance to it. But what is it really pointing to? It's, it's, it's a disloyalty. He, he's feeding on things and, and grasping at things. Or if we went to the message of the, the preacher, he's striving after wind but not after God. There's a disloyalty here to their God. And there's the multiplication principle again that we've seen in Hosea. He's multiplying lies and violence. He's making up new falsehoods. He's plotting new things to deceive. Or if you just think about what lying does, lying begets lying, does it not? In order to maintain the first lie, what do you have to do? You have to lie some more. And they're multiplying these lies and deceit. And this is what God is seeing. And then he's doing his stupid alliances. He's trying to court two enemies at one time. Uh, what one commentator calls simply political madness. It's ludicrous. They're, they're courting Assyria, making a covenant, but on the other hand, they're taking oil to Egypt because Egypt didn't have the olive trees. It didn't have that stuff, and they knew, okay, if we want to attract them, then we, we bring the oil. And, and that's a duplicity that they, they're not going to win. And again, it's being false to God, is it not? They're making a covenant with an enemy, hoping that that enemy will give them strength. But they're not looking to God for their strength. And again, it's the whole nation. He says in verse 2, the Lord has a dispute with Judah. And there are those, in some of your translations back in 11, it says that Judah at this time is still walking with the Lord. But I, I think that's a mistranslation because of the fact he said, I've got a dispute with them. If they were walking with the Lord, I don't see how the two verses go together here. But he's looking at the nation, the Israel as a whole, both northern and southern kingdoms. He says, I have a dispute with Judah. 
and I'm going to punish Jacob according to his ways. Or it's really one of these chiastic things in Hebrew. Uh, and I will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his deeds, I will repay him. It's just an emphasis of the fact that I am going to bring down on him the punishment for his deeds. It's a reminder that the nation has inherited some foolish traits from their forefather, Jacob. And they would say, do we not have Jacob as our father? And God would say, that's no cause for boasting, because I'm going to show you what he was like in his manhood as well as in the womb. I'll show you what he is like. But in the midst of all of these things that we'll see, going through this history biography of Jacob, I think we will also see that, yes, they inherited the foolish traits of their forefather, but they also inherited the covenant promises promised to him. And there's that hope in here again. There's that weaving of, of hope, of promise, of future and reconciliation after the punishment. So it's somewhat abrupt, and if I were good, better in the Hebrew, you would see that he brings in poetry, he brings in a hymn fragment, he brings in proverbs, he brings in puns galore that I can't bring out in the English. But, but there is here, in the, in the midst of Hosea's writing, God interjects, and we see him mostly in the third person, but there are times when he, he comes in, it's almost as if he emphasizes, but I, I. So listen to these things as, as we look through here. Beginning in verse 3, we see Jacob, and we see why he was so aptly named. There's two scenarios that he would have us look at, and it's, it's very brief and concise, but here he, we see Jacob from Genesis 28 through 32 is where these things are taken. In the womb, verse 3, he took his brother by the heel. It's in the very beginning of his life, he takes his brother by the heel. Now, in Jacob, that's what the name means. Now, other places, a man named Jacob, as far as I can understand it, it would be rendered, may God be at your heels. In other words, may God be your rear guard. But because of Jacob, because he's hanging on to Esau's heels, it became, he took by the heels. See, it's the same word, but the, the emphasis is what he was in his family. And Esau, Esau tells Isaac, does he not? You got his name right, right? Is he not aptly named the, the one who takes by the heel? And Esau would know, wouldn't he? Because wily old Jacob got him twice. He got his birthright, and then later he got the blessing by his bamboozling. And this is his name. But what do we see in the midst of this? Well, was there any more excellence in Jacob than Esau? Was there any more right to the favor of God in Jacob than Esau? No. 
It's free election here. This is the free grace of God selecting Jacob over Esau. Now, the people of Israel would have said, you know, to them, this, this is a non-issue. It was taken as a given, we, we are your people. Remember, he's already used that phrase, where they said, God, we are Israel, we know you. Trying to, to back up on their breeding and their teaching. Yet, again, Israel, he has already said in this book, Israel has rejected the good. Israel has not returned to me, he says. And then we see Jacob in his maturity, in his manhood. He contended with God. And it's, it's a beautiful passage. Hard to understand, but he wrestles with God, it seems. And he got a new name. He got the Hebrew name Israel, which means may God strive for him. But we know that it comes out in Genesis and how we see him is he strives with God. Now, many of the commentators look at this and they, they, they look at a man striving with God. And I, I think there, is, there are positive things in it. But I don't think Hosea is using it in a positive way. Because Jacob was impulsive. And Jacob was very presumptuous of God that God had to bless him. But he perhaps sought God in a time of great soul searching. But why? Because he was afraid of his brother that he was going to meet again. And he didn't want Esau's army to harm his family. And so he sent them over secretly in two companies. And yet, at the critical time, we find Jacob alone. And it's as if God says, if it's positive, Jacob sought me when he was wrenched in his soul. But you as a nation, you sought Assyria. You wanted your strength from your enemies. And then we hear, he says, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Well, that's not in chapter 20. Are 32, the weeping. And we may just have to say that there may be some things from tradition or some things that were revealed to Hosea that he's recorded that were not recorded by Moses in Genesis. But if he did, if this was positive, that he sought him with heartbreak and tears... The nation of Israel has not followed that because they refuse, God says, to return to me. They refuse to seek me. He says he found him at Bethel. Who? He found God at Bethel. You see, Hosea's got his chapters backwards. He's got chapter 32 ahead of chapter 28. And it may be, again, for the poetry that I can't really relate to you here. But he's speaking to God there, and he, he does worship the true God. But there are limitations. 
If you read Genesis 28, he says when he wakes up from the dream, remember Jacob's ladder we call it, with the host, the host going up and down the ladder, he realizes his limitations. He, he says, surely God is in this place and I did not know it. At least Jacob recognized that his intelligence didn't extend that far. I didn't know it. But notice his limitation in terms of what he thinks. Surely God is in this place. He doesn't see God as universal. He doesn't see God as all-encompassing. God is in this place. And then he goes on when he's fully awake the next morning. He makes a promise to God of tithing and of naming the place Bethel, house of God, Beit El. And that he would return on his way back from his mission to find a wife that his father Isaac has sent him on. That he would return, but as far as I can read, he doesn't return. But again, if we take it as a positive, he would be saying to us or to the people of Israel and us as well, he found the true God at named it the house of God, Bethel. But you, we already know from Hosea, you have made the name a reproach because now it's Bethaven, house of wickedness. That's how it's known. It may still have that sign, welcome to Bethel, but it is Bethaven, the house of wickedness. And he made a vow to God but you all have stumbled in your sins. And he made a vow to God there. But what do we see later when they come out of Paddan Aram, when he brings his family, what do they have with them? They have stolen the household idols of Laban. They are already into idolatry. It's already in your house, Jacob. And what do we see in the book of Hosea over and over and over is their idolatry. God manifested himself to Jacob. He renewed his covenant to him there. But you, Israel, you regard it lightly. You, you don't have the sense even at, at all of the awe, of the wonder, uh, of, the, of the sheer realization that Jacob had, surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. And so he seems to be telling us, look back. Look back and learn. Look at your father. He, he was wily. He was, he, he was one who was scheming. He was one who was always striving with people. He, he, he was one who, who, who met, you know, he met his father-in-law, and, and he, the worst father-in-law I think you could ever have, and he even bamboozled him. That's your forefather. That's Jacob. But he says, do you understand? What Jacob didn't see at the time, even in Bethel, and didn't seem to get fully at Peniel, which is where he named the place of his wrestling, the one who appeared to Jacob was none other than Jehovah, the God of hosts. That name that God says here, that memorial name, verse 5, this is his name, this, the Lord, 
is his memorial. We look at that and we, we think in terms of the fact that the Jews will not say the name. In fact, they will just use that word, the name. There are some who will use just the letters that we trans translate in from, from the Hebrew, Yahweh. It, it's, it's the name that God has set up as the one that he wants to be remembered most by. Yes, there are many great and wonderful names in the scriptures, but it, he, it's as if God has set this name apart. Jehovah, the God of hosts. We know he's the God of hosts from the fact that he we see the host of the angels going up and down the, the ladder at Bethel. We know he is the, the Lord of hosts, the God of hosts, because when they come out of Egypt, he calls them these people, the, the host of the Lord coming out. So there are, the, there are the angels and there are the saints that are the hosts that he names here. The God of these hosts, but it's the name... Jehovah that he brings us to. He is the first. He is the supreme. He is the eternal. He is the infinite being. Uh, one of the commentators simply says, God is from himself. Being Jehovah, God gives being to all his promises. God gives being to all that he does. But he also, and again in the context of Hosea, he gives being to all of his threats because he is Jehovah. And it is his memorial name. And we would all, we would all do well to remember the memorial name because if God is from himself, it's if he is the great, and it kind of dovetails with the, what he calls himself when he meets Moses, I am. The great I am, the being, the ever all-sufficient all-being. Where does our being come from? All of what we are, all of who we hope to become, all our being comes from God. All our moments in life are dependent upon him. He is Jehovah. We've been asked some times, not lately that I can remember, but several times, why does your church not have a cross on, on the top? Why don't you have crosses up here in the front of your building? We, we think in terms of statues and memorials as things made of stone or, or granite, or, or made of, of some kind of lasting substance. But God has said, I give you a name as my memorial. Jeremiah Burroughs says, there is no need of images to keep God's remembrance. The glorious titles of God and his attributes and the manifestation of himself in his works is the best memorial of God. We don't go to a shrine. We don't hold beads. We don't worship a cross. We worship God. And by remembering, and this, this would be the thing, when he says return to your God, the first thing we ought to think of when we meditate on him is on his memorial name. 
those attributes, those wonderful works that he did, the way he manifested himself, the titles that God has in the scriptures. Those are the things that ought to draw us. That's our memorial. That's where our thoughts ought to be. And so he says to them, and I think to us as well, therefore, therefore, because he is Jehovah, the God of hosts, therefore you. And there, it doesn't come across in the New American Standard, but some of your other versions. Therefore, you emphasize, you return. Israel, you return my people to your God. He is your God, but you have been turning away from him. You've been refusing to come to him. He's been calling, and now you have this motivation, this thing that he places before you as his memorial. You must return to your God. And so you... People who have parents who seek God, who seek him daily as their one they depend on, the one who gives them being. Do you? Do you look at godly people in your family, in your church, in your sphere of influence who seek him and do you imitate their actions? Or do you dare, as many do, fight Fight against Jehovah, the one who is supreme, the one who is eternal, the one who is infinite. You would fight against him. You will not win that battle. You will not win that fight. Because the name Jehovah has as much terror for sinners as it does rejoicing for the saints. At once, it is a name of fear and trembling. And at once, it is a name that is tender a name that is comforting, a name that gives us hope. Return to God. Turn to him. Turn to him to be saved. Turn to him simply because he made you, he created you, and formed you for his glory. Turn to him because he offers you grace, and now he offers you grace through his only son, Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Come to him. And we see that that is our response. It's as if he is reciting to us the, the meaning or, or here in condensed form the first table of the, the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then he turns to the second table of the law and he says, observe kindness and justice. You who would follow Jehovah, this is how you will act. It's keep Keep justice, keep kindness, keep doing these things, keep after these things. They're requirements of your service. Loving kindness is that word that David preached to us a few weeks ago. Chesed, loving kindness. And here we have it connected with justice, with conduct, just conduct with others. There's your relationship with God and your relationship with others. And wait upon your God continually. And again, it was popular, I guess, during the 70s and 80s when people would, Christians would read, wait upon God, they would say, let go and let God. No, it's not. Why? Because you can't keep observing loving kindness and justice and be doing nothing. <laughs> it just can't happen. 
in addition to doing loving-kindness and doing justice, continually waiting on God, yes, wait for Him to exalt you, as the Scriptures say, in due time. Wait for His peace. Wait for His grace. Wait for His mercy. Yes, we wait in that sense, but as we wait, we're doing. We're keeping worship. We're keeping on exercising the gifts that He has given us, the spiritual gifts of serving and speaking. We're seeking Him always, seeking the Lord, as He has already said. It is time to seek Him. It's not letting go. It is keeping on, keeping on doing those things, waiting on God, knowing that He will bring these things to pass, that He will, in due time, exalt us in a way that He has prepared for us. And so when they look at Jacob, they look at their forefather, this ancestor, it's as if he's saying to them, you have picked up these traits uh, of his, his character, the, the usurper, the, the striver, the impulsive, presumptuous one, and you're not listening to me. You're not focusing on why I have these things. Why do you, do you have this forefather? He, he showed you what, that I would manifest myself to you, that I would keep my covenant, that I would, I would do those things that I had promised. But you've forsaken me, and you want to hang on to his name. I am Jehovah, the God of hosts. Return to your God. And then he talks about Ephraim, and maybe not so much about him as a person, but we know that he was a powerful man. But here, here's where the sarcasm kind of comes in, and here's where the puns start in verse 7. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. What is he? Some of your margins will say Canaanite. The Canaanites were, were known as, the, they, they, they were merchants. They, they loved merchandise. And it, it was as if we hear Paul saying, you're a Corinthian. Right? You, you have, you have the, the character of a Corinthian person, and, and God is looking at them and saying, I don't recognize you as Israelites. You look like Canaanites to me. You have taken on their personality. You're a Shemelian. You, you, you've, you've melded yourself with them. You've become like them. Why? Because in your hands are false balances, and he loves to oppress. The, again, here's that duplicitous nature, the, the, the sin that he has. The, as, a, as a merchant, he says, you, you have the false balance that, that you, you carry in your bag two weights. You, you carry a, one that's a little bigger than the measure and one a little bit smaller. And, you, and you, when you're selling, you, you put on the one that is too small, and so they get too little. And when you're buying, you put on the one too big, so you get more. And then we read in Proverbs, it says, a good balance and good scales belong to the Lord. And then it says this, all the weights in the bag are God's concern. So you can't hide anything. You can't have that little one false weight. All these are good. <laughs> right? And have that one, you, all the weights in the bag are God's concern. All the sins in your bag are God's concern. All your actions, all your thoughts, all of your 
being is God's concern. And he loves to oppress. It probably reads, he oppresses those he loves. <laughs> he oppresses even his loved ones. See, he doesn't discriminate. His neighbor, yeah, I'll deceive him. And the loved ones, yeah, too. He, see, this is what you're like, Ephraim. And Ephraim says, surely I have become rich. I have found my wealth for myself. Well, you, that's kind of wearing it on his sleeve, right? I have done this for myself. Slapping God in the face, as it were. You don't trust me because you said, surely I've become rich. Surely I've gained these things for myself. And you think that you've purchased some kind of substance here. But the substance is more, no more than your feeding on the wind. You're, you think that earthly wealth makes you really wealthy? That you really have something? Again, Proverbs tells us wealth makes for itself wings. It flies away. That kind of wealth, that kind of thing to gain, that kind of substance, it's fallacious thinking. The folly of their thinking, I got this. We got these things for ourselves. They're for me alone, Ephraim says. These are things to be gloried in. And God says, no. There's no substance to these things. And here's the height of his arrogance and his folly. He says, in all my labors they will find in me no iniquity that would be sin. <laughs> what an arrogant fool. I never committed any sin in these interactions. At least according to my standards. People are like that, aren't they? This is, this is the character that they have. Is it, I, I can't do anything wrong. And God answers. And it's as, as if he in, reintroduces himself here in verse 9. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Again, where do we see, hear that phrase? I have been the Lord your God since coming out of Egypt. It's the preamble in Exodus 20 to the Ten Commandments. I, I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Therefore, he says. See, he's directing their mind back to himself. I see the traits of Jacob. I see the traits of Ephraim. And you want to imitate them? But it was I. I will, he says, I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. And again, I, I take this as a negative. Some take it as a positive. And I guess it could be a positive because of the outcome that he's going to, to bring. But he's saying to them, your destiny is not in your DNA. Your destiny is not in your commercial success. But your destiny is in knowing me. And I will help you remember that. I am the one who elected you. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt and made you into a great nation. But remember how I was helping your forefathers understand their total dependence upon me in the wilderness? 
They lived in tents, and they moved around, and we set up a memorial, a feast of tabernacles, where they would remember that I had supplied for them manna, and I had supplied myself in leading them with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And I'm going to do it again. Because I will make you go through the fears and the sorrows and the hardships that they went through until they learned it. I will remember mercies to you, Israel. I will remember that I brought you out of the darkness of Egypt and I put you in the light of my countenance. But you'll have to see it again. You'll have to retake that course until I call you back home. And then we come to where he wraps these things up in verse 10. It says this kind of abrupt change. I have also spoken to the prophets. I gave numerous visions and through the prophets I gave parables. He says, I have the, the prophets talk to you. They, they had a leading role in how I wanted to interact with you. I gave them visions. I gave them parables to give to you. And, and they were part of the founding and they were part of the preserving of you as a nation's as a nation, but I don't think you got it. I, I, I gave you these parables, and, and what did you do? Back in chapter 9, Hosea says, quoting them, the prophet is a fool. That's how you think of the prophets. Well, let me tell you these little similes. Verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. Now there's a pun in Hebrew, again, that I can't relate to you. But basically he's saying, Gilead, that, that city where the priests lived across the Jordan, that little forest glade hamlet, can there be any sin over there? <laughs> and we know the answer, of course, from previous chapters is yes, and a lot of it. And he says, Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. They have these altars, but the altars... Or like, you know, the farmer, when he plows his field, he comes to a stone. What does he do? He stacks it up, right? He wipes the sweat off his brow, and he goes again, and he keeps stacking these stones. Gilgal, is, is that a leading city? Is, is that a place where sacrifices mean anything? No, it's just a worthless heap of rubble. And I'll give you one more simile, too. And this is one is more pointed to what I want to say in this chapter. But verse 13, think about Jacob again. But, or, sorry, verse 12. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. Hosea is mocking here. He's mocking their cities, but he's, he's building up. He, he's mocking Jacob. And it's not a comparison, it's a contrast. He's not saying, and again, some take it as, as a comparison to God, but I think what he's saying is, look, look at Jacob again. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. He's a fugitive, not a pilgrim and sojourner after me. He's, he's a fugitive. And Israel worked for a wife. What does that mean? He didn't have the endowment to secure a wife for himself. He was poor. He had to work for her. And then her again. 
But God says, I didn't have that problem. I brought my bride out of Egypt with my strong arm. I could get her out by myself. Jacob had to work for a wife. And for a wife, he kept sheep. He's a shepherd. And if you read Genesis, he was a pretty good shepherd of sheep. But it's as if God is saying, but he is not the shepherd of the nation. I chose, verse 13, but by a prophet the Lord has brought Israel from Egypt. I selected a prophet of my own choosing, Moses, to be the one who would shepherd them out of Egypt. And Moses, we know, didn't look at his circumstance, he looked to me. When you cried to him, he turned to me. He focused on me. The, the prophets are here, and he says, by a prophet he was kept. And I don't know if he means Samuel only, or Samuel and Elijah and Elisha, and on down the line to Hosea. It's as if he's saying, Jacob, yeah, he was a strong physical man. And Jacob had some good points, and he did learn some things. But I am speaking to you by a prophet, and his name is Hosea. <laughs> now, there were others. Moses and Samuel and Elijah ahead of him. But I am speaking through the prophets. Why? Because I'm trying to get you to think. I'm trying to get you to think and to look at me. You're looking at Jacob. Aren't we the ones who have Jacob as our father? That doesn't count. Look to me. Look to me, because by a prophet that I gave you visions, I gave you parables, I gave you words that they related to you. And what did they do? Verse 14, Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger. Ephraim has provoked God, Jehovah, the God of hosts. Ephraim has provoked Hosea to anger. They're, he's opposed to the word which means he's opposed to God. And he's opposed to the point of bitterness in provoking God. Are you the seed of Jacob, he says? And if you were, then there would be some patience, some humility, some dependence. But I don't see that in you. You're rebellious and you are stubborn. Your pride and your confidence in your ancestor, at least your vision of your ancestor, has provoked me to anger. And he charges him with murder. Your blood guilt will be on him. The full measure of it, he means. The full measure will be returned to you. Again, we know from the Proverbs, it says, where there is no prophecy or where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. And God is saying, no, I bring you the prophets so that you will think, that you will learn, that you will put your focus on me. But had it changed by the time Jesus came? No. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You killed the prophets and you stoned those who were sent to speak to you. They had not changed. But there is hope here. 
We see it here again in Hosea. We'll see it as we go through 13 and 14. There is hope from the mouth of our, our Lord Jesus when he says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There is that promise. There is that hope that as we come to him, our deeds will be shown, that they're not, we're not banking on our DNA. We're not banking on how we are as businessmen. We're not banking on how we do. We are not, as someone has said, on a performance basis with God. But he has chosen. But he has chosen us to be of service to him, of worship to him. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, we have this, these things in our, in our minds, in our heads. And I think you can see some of the parallels and connections here. Ephraim feeds on the wind, Hosea said. The wind of applause, his own conceits, his own exploits. But the saints... Of God, the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ feed upon the mercy and all sufficiency of God. We feed on the promises of His Word. And when Jesus came, and many of the disciples fled from Him when He said these things, but we know that the Scripture says, His flesh is meat indeed, His blood is drink indeed. We feed on substance, we feed on that which comes from Christ alone. And Jacob may have wept and he may have sought the favor of God, but our champion, our conqueror, the Lord Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh offered both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. That is our champion. His heart was broken for his people. And it is Jesus that we remember. Again, there are many who would have us set up some kind of memorial, a statue, something to see. But what did Jesus do? His memorial is in the bread and the wine that we take together. His memorial perhaps reminds us that we are totally dependent upon God for our bread, for our daily bread, and for our sustenance, for our being. But it also reminds us of that glory of his titles, of his attributes, of his compassionate work on the cross. See, the memorial, that it's not just a memorial, I guess, is what I want to say. It's not just, well, okay, we remember that day 2,000 years ago. It is an active memorial. It is that which causes us to think of him, causes us to dwell on who he is and what he has done for us. It is his memorial, and we have that privilege of partaking of it together. I'd like to ask if, uh, Sam, would you please help me uh, pass out the elements and, uh, as we go to the Lord's table?
1 Corinthians, we read from the pen of Paul. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul continues, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that these, these words, these memorial names would pierce us to the heart. That as we hear the name Jehovah, as we think about Christ and the work on the cross, that it would cause us to, to, to be in awe and wonder. To, to be as it were, thrown on our faces to, to worship you. Because we remember the attributes, we remember the manifestation of your, your works to, to us who, who have no deserving and no excellency that you would even care for us. And yet, Father, we do pray that it would stir us up to return to you in, in all of our ways, turn to you for healing, and yet also turn to you that we may keep justice and we may keep loving kindness, that we would be servants of the God of hosts, that you would be glorified in us, and that you would be privileged and, and, and glad to bring us to yourself at that great day as your bride. And so we ask that you would do these things, ask that you would continue to build your church for Jesus' sake.
we ask. Amen. You please rise for the benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good work to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.